Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. I came across Professor Jennifer Sterling Foker's 2005 critique of global governance a few years ago and was intrigued to learn more. An iconoclastic theorist among the so-called realist school of international relations, Jennifer draws inspiration from titans of realist thought such as Hans Morgenthau and E.H. Carr to advance a neoclassical realist understanding of global politics, one rooted in a deep appreciation of our biological drives as a hypersocial species, as well as the structural advantages enjoyed by powerful groups intent on dictating the terms of global governance. Agree or not, this distinctive argument merits our attention. Inspired by Susan Strange's famous 1983 critique of regime analysis entitled Cave Hick Dragons, Jennifer agrees that when it comes to global governance, appearances are often not what they seem. At first glance, the liberal world order and its attendant machinery appears to be a collective good, allowing us all to pursue our self-interest. However, upon closer inspection, Jennifer argues that this world order reveals itself to be one of the ultimate expressions of group dominance hierarchies, and by extension, subject to change as power shifts over time. Saying, wow, you guys are confusing this particular historical moment of American dominance and Western dominance too. It's not just American, it's Western. You're confusing Western dominance and power relationships and their preferences with this larger historical um, movement that we're engaged in. You think that the two are the same, that somehow just because we've won, we're going to reshape history. And my bottom line argument is, no, there's other things that are shaping it that, that we can't just socially reconstruct. The dragon in the room is the nation state and nationalism. And that didn't go away just because we had a liberal world order. This is Imperfect Utopias or BUST, Global Governance Futures. Dr. Jennifer Sterling Foker is the Alan R. Bennett Honors Professor in Political Science at the University of Connecticut. She is an international relations theorist whose writing focuses on theories of international organization, global governance, nationalism, and world order. We spoke with her in March 2022. Okay, um, I guess we'll we'll roll in uh, to start. Um, I think we wanted to sort of paint a picture of uh, your your foundations, your research foundations, and and how your your thought process has evolved. So, um, how was it to begin your scholarly career in the 1990s um, amid the neo-realist hard power machismo on one side and the liberal allure of the end of history moment on the other, and more broadly, what drew you to a historical and multidisciplinary perspective? Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to look back on the 1990s, how significant that was, how much it's generated this sort of whole uh, literature on the liberal world order. Uh, but, you know, I'd say actually my formative years were in the 80s. That's when I was a grad student. I was at the University of Chicago. Um, I actually had John Mearsheimer for my um, pro seminar, you know, in, in IR theory. Uh, and, you know, back then, the whole debate was about hegemonic stability. You'd had um, Kenneth Waltz's theory of international politics had come out in 79. 
That was followed by Cohen, Robert Cohen writing about after uh, after hegemony and and then Joseph Greco and and Cohen gets get into this big fight about absolute versus relative gains, all of which were dreadfully boring topics. But we actually read in John Mearsheimer's seminar a draft of Joseph Greco's book that was all about how you know realism can explain cooperation. It was this very limited conversation, and yet it informs all the literature that starts coming out in the 1990s, um, rehashing of subjects about whether American hegemony is declining, what it would mean for world order if the U.S. declined. Now, of course, you know, you fast forward and, and, and also I should say, and also the 19, right at the tail end of the 80s is when Alexander Wendt is coming along with arguments about social constructivism. And I remember I was a student when he came to visit. He was like an assistant professor at the time. And I remember being in a workshop where he was talking about constructivism. So all that was kind of happening prior to the end of the Cold War. Then the end of the Cold War is this shock. It's like um, to the to the academic system, because the different sides, at least in the American Academy, are, are caught up in this whole debate about American hegemony decline. Um, and then it turns out, well, no, we, we quote, win the Cold War and now it's America's game, right? So now America gets to set the agenda along with its allies. Everybody else becomes a, you know, a capitalist free trading society almost overnight. Uh, and there's a lot of crowing back and forth between the different academics about, you know, is this the death knell? Realism was wrong, you know, that it, we didn't have a bipolar system. Now we have a unipolar system. And a lot of realists prior to 1990s proclaiming that we'd never have a unipolar system. You'd never have it because everybody's going to balance against the unipolar. Well, now we're in this unipolar system. Everybody seems to be bandwagoning. They're not balancing. So there's all these arguments about whether realism is going to be in decline. And meanwhile, like you say, realists come back with this machismo. Oh, no, you know, we can explain everything. And, and you know, I, I love it because they're not the only ones who do it. But it's like whatever they wrote before, it, it's like they whitewash it. Oh, yeah, I knew all along it was going to be this. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, you get this kind of battle royale. But I mean, it was actually the extension of ongoing conversations that I had kind of cut my teeth on in the 80s. And and as I said, I found kind of boring. Um, I think Ollie Waver, when he has that piece in, in International Organization, um, the journal, and during their, I think it was their 50th anniversary issue, he has a great piece where he looks at the sociology of the discipline. That's like one of the first sociology of knowledge of the discipline pieces. And he says, you know, that the neo-neo debate between the, the realists and the liberals was, you know, sort of on this, this level of boredom. I mean, it's just a boring conversation. Um, and so I think it was a reaction to that, that not so much... I mean, the 90s were significant, um, but I think I found what the realists and liberals were talking about very boring. And that led me to want to explore different ways of thinking about um, what was happening, not only in world politics, but also a larger historical vision. And really, if I had to characterize what I was interested in that nobody was really talking about um, so much at the time, at least again in the American Academy, was sort of what constituted world order. And I think that conversation then, as, as we proceeded after the Cold War, everybody banned wagons with the U.S., um, you know, it seems like this period of liberal hegemony. Then you get this whole conversation that John Eikenberry is really responsible for, which is now we're in a liberal world order. And to me, those discussions of world order, whether it was a Westphalian world order, you know, we're a world of nation states or we're a liberal world order, it, they just seem very narrow to me and they continue to seem narrow to me. 
So I guess I was always looking for something that was a little bit more historically sensitive, more interesting, that kind of stood back and tried to be self-reflexive and stand back and try to think about not just what we're all enmeshed in, but what's going on in sort of the larger historical picture regionally uh, and, you know, in, in different parts of the world historically, and how does what we're doing fit into that? And I don't think a lot of, there are obviously scholars who are interested in that, but amazingly, a lot of American IR scholars are not. They want to speak to U.S. foreign policy makers. So they remain very much embedded in this historical moment, and they don't practice a lot of critical self-reflexivity, I think. So as a result, they end up producing scholarship that is very jingoistic. It's very uh, propaganda driven, and it doesn't kind of get the big picture. Yeah, so... I mean, you've, you've mentioned how in many ways, you know, I mean, this is something which I think many scholars have, have reflected on, people like Andrew Howell, how uh, academia often goes with the sort of policy fad of the times. And it's yep. really the role of the academic to, to step back, to not necessarily drink the Kool-Aid, to uh, be a bit bloody minded, ask difficult questions. And of course, you know, um, this is a podcast about global governance futures. Yes. Many scholars have reflected on global governance as, you know, really a sort of shock gun wedding between policy and academia and you know for that reason there's a lot of ambiguity around what the term means and i mean your fantastic chapter uh, that you wrote in 2005 really is global governance i think it really brings home you know that, <laughs> that actually there's some very foundational questions that need to be addressed so perhaps sort of picking up on on your reflection there in terms of you know <laughs> How to inject some some more vitality into what we're doing here in terms of global right. politics scholarship? Right. You describe global governance as simultaneously a structural and a historical phenomenon, and I'm wondering whether you could help us unpack that. Okay, I'll try. You know, it's so funny because um, I that piece, of course, was written in 2005. So, sort of again talking about historical dating. So, you know, something you write 20 years ago, it's like, what what was I saying then? Even though it has remained a foundational argument to everything that I talk about, including my current work on nationalism and world order. But um, you know, and going back and trying to unpack it, I think the thing, uh, sort of the way to think about it, is that. Uh, in some ways, I'm always trying to be a devil's advocate for whatever is the dominant perspective in the moment. And at that time in 2005, you had already had about sort of 15 years of this unipolar moment of American hegemony, uh, it, itself reflecting also Western ideals and Western values. And just even the nature of what um, Alison Bond and Matt Hoffman were doing at the University of Delaware was reflecting this idea that, you know, we were in this period of global governance, which essentially was attached to sort of liberal uh, notions about uh, co cosmopolitan liberal notions about the way the world works and that we could, in effect, remake the world in our own images and that it would be good for the world. It would be good for us if everybody was. Uh, and, and here we're talking about. So the liberal triad, it typically uh, consists of that uh, everybody should be a democracy, everybody should be a capitalist, and that international institutions and international law will help us get there. They're sort of the main vehicles whereby we can encourage those things. So it was sort of this, this time period of sort of hubris over 
oh, you know, we can all be liberals now. And, and it's the end of history. Francis Fukuyama's claim that liberalism has finally triumphed. And um, if we get on board and we all become capitalist democracies, participating in international organization and law, we can solve all the world's problems, everything from you know, refugee issues to climate problems and so on. All these are amenable now that we're all the same or becoming the same. And so at the time, I was really reacting to that and saying, wow, you guys are confusing this particular historical moment of American dominance and Western dominance, too. It's not just American, it's Western. You're confusing Western dominance and power relationships and their preferences with this larger historical um, movement that we're engaged in. You think that the two are the same, that somehow just because we've won, we're going to reshape history. And my bottom line argument is, no, there's other things that are shaping it that, that we can't just socially reconstruct. And my big argument is, uh, and it involves something that realists have talked about for a long time, though their interest in it waxes and wanes. And that's that as social beings, we tend to create groups in order to survive. And we have done so historically throughout time, what those groups look like, how they are constructed, what they believe is very much something that we socially construct. But the fact that we're social creatures is hardwired into our DNA and it shapes our politics. And it means that we are forever creating groups and those groups aren't always at each other's throats, but they can be. And the more powerful groups among, say, a, a, a set of groups within a region, the more powerful ones relative to one another are going to be the ones who will set the uh, agenda of how are we going to trade with each other? How do we engage in war? What are our daily lives like? What are sort of the normative assumptions we make about the world? The powerful units make those choices for everyone else. And everybody else is sort of within or under their ideas. And my own thinking about it historically, which you were seeing in the 2000s, and you've seen it right up until, you know, Brexit and Trump, is that, um, you know, people were too often confusing the fact that very powerful states had these preferences and treating that like, great, the world has been remade. No, it hasn't been remade. It's still within these boundaries of groups competing with one another. So I think, um, I don't want to be sometimes, you know, realism can be very fatalistic. I mean, it's basically like a recipe to just go home and give up. Right. You know, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. Power determines everything. We might as well just sit back and let it all fall apart. And that isn't my argument. And we can talk about the ethics in a minute. Um, but it is true that if you then engage in these global governance mechanisms and you tell activists these are decent ways to change the world, they will be disappointed because they can't actually change the way the world works when those ideas are saying this is a universal idea, but yet we're a bunch of individual nation states, little groups that are all competing among ourselves. It's like it's denying the very foundation of what is the the, the preferences of the powerful. So um, so I wanted to sort of give a warning to my colleagues to not do that. But of course, you know, warnings only go so far. I mean, Susan Strange was doing the same thing too in her own literature. And, and I don't know how many people listened. Nobody listens. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. Sometimes they listen. Some, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes uh, I mean, they listen, but sometimes they hear the wrong message. Huh, that's really I mean, interesting. I got, yeah. I got to say, I just finished reading um, John Mearsheimer's The Great Delusion. Liberal Dreams and in International Realities, 
where he now argues that social groups like nations are preventing liberals from achieving their dreams. So, you know, he's now at the tail end when the liberal world order is supposedly coming to an end um, and Americans are no longer hegemonic. He's now making sort of the kinds of arguments I was making in 2005. But I think he gets the story wrong, too. And again, we don't have to go into it. But even, you know, there if you're not critically self-reflexive about your own arguments, you're going to fall into the trap of repeating sort of silly arguments. Sorry, John, silly arguments um, about the way the world works. I was going to say that, you know, maybe in 2022, in a context of obviously the, the, the security situation in Eastern Europe at the moment, people may be much more receptive to your analysis. But this was 2005. You know, this was before yes. the 2008 financial crash. It was before uh, the presidency of Donald Trump. Uh, and yeah. I mean, there are some quite provocative statements here, you know, I mean, you argue that the creation of any particular global governance system should be ranked on a par with waging and winning world wars. Uh, and I think that's, that's <laughs> very interesting and somewhat of a stark contrast to the to the dominant understanding of what global governance is uh, yes. during that period, at least. And indeed, you know, the liberal um, the, the liberal notion of global governance as essentially a, a sort of an infrastructure for delivering global public goods was very prominent then and remains very prominent today. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, the other concept which I, I thought really jumped out to me was this notion of the transhistorical power project. You know, I think a lot of IR scholars are very allergic to the idea of any kind of transhistorical claim. But you make the claim, and mm. it's based upon this notion that we are ultimately sociable animals, right, a social right. species, that we yeah. therefore engage in in interspecies, intergroup conflict, uh, competition to amass resources, to amass power. How do you respond to those who might say, oh, that sounds uh, an awful lot like an essentialist argument? And to put it very, very bluntly, you know, does our biological programming then determine, you know, by and large, determine global political life? Right. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. But here's the caveat. So I um, I spent some part of my early explorations of this topic in the weeds of Darwinism and evolutionary theory and, um, you know, some really interesting stuff that's being written about there. But uh, at the end of the day, I see our uh, I think it's very helpful to go in that direction, because then you get sort of a larger big picture. If you start thinking of us as a species relative to other species, like birds or turtles or, you know, whatever animal you want to choose, you begin to see there's differences in the way um, different species interact um, with among themselves. And that gives you some purchase on what makes us sort of a species. But as I argue in that piece, and I've tried to consistently argue, but it is easy to get it muddied. I think that does mean that there is, um, in a sense, there's a biological imperative to be social in the sense that we can't, you're not going to get out of infancy if, if there aren't other people there caring for you. Um, I think, and that's very different from, say, a turtle, right? A turtle just lays its eggs and goes off. We, on the other hand, are not, and Nicholas Onuf is absolutely right about this, you are not actualized as a human being unless you are within a social setting and you are raised in social settings. And they've done studies of children who you know, uh, didn't have those and, and they can't, often can't be integrated into um, human society because that's part of how we become human is by being social in a sense, by, by being raised in a social setting. 
But that social setting, what the content of that setting is, is very much a historical process. I mean, I would say nation states today are the dominant form of social groups, but they're not ahistorical in any way. They're very much a historical production that's coming out of a human need to produce difference within and to create groups and produce differences among them. But nation states are just the, you know, one of many different types of polities that have been produced um, historically. And yet, because there's, there's these social groups, we create social groups, you end up seeing similar dynamics historically, power amassing, right? Uh, uh, sort of uh, balance of power issues where different groups are, in fact, concerned about each other's relative power, seek to uh, gain power, uh, fight over resources, trade. That's another one. It's not just fighting. It's also figuring out how they're going to get resources from one another. And they're doing it within this context of um, I'm part of this sort of ethnic group or I'm part of this national group or I'm part of this religious group and I'm different from you. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean we're all fighting all the time, but that I would argue is why you're seeing that hit transhistorical pattern. But the content of what the patterns are, are very different over time. And I think too many people get that confused. They think like somehow the nation state is teleologically the end point of human social history. No, it's it's part of the historical process. I don't know what we're going to look like as groups in 200 years. But it will leave an, leave an imprint on what will look like, uh, what kind of polity is dominant then. There will be historical, um, not historical sameness, but there's path dependency in where we go with these things. Um, and those groups, whatever they're going to look like, I don't know what those polities are going to look like in 200 years, but they will have some similar patterns because when you form groups, out of that come certain transhistorical patterns, very simple transhistorical patterns, balance of power, amassing power. That's really all I'm talking about. How they actually go about doing it or what they're concerned about is socially constructed. So that's why I would argue it's not essentialist historically. It does argue that certain there are certain boundaries to human, or you say human behavior that are going to evolve groups. But beyond that, um, it, you you can have tremendous variety. You just can't overcome that groupness. I think is the point. The tendency to want to form groups because that's how that's what we are. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does, and I think we're going to we're going to uh, explore that in in some more depth today okay. because it's very pertinent to a, a range of issues which are on our on our radar uh, with with this podcast. But before we do, I'd really like to just return uh, briefly to you, you mentioned Susan Strange's uh, uh, influence uh, on your work and yeah. inspiration for your work, and in this 2005 intervention, you draw on Susan Strange's powerful critique of liberal regime theory from the early 1980s when yeah. regime theory itself was pretty nascent uh, and uh, it's it's really it's really great how you draw out her you know uh, cave hick dragons metaphor and then you distinguish between imagined dragons in global politics and right. genuine fire breathers in global right. politics mm -hmm. and I, i'm i'm curious to ask so what, what do you mean by this distinction and could we say you know now in february 2022 sorry march 2022 um, could we say in a sense that these dragons are coming home to roost mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have said um, nationalism was one of them. And it's interesting. I wasn't writing about nationalism at the time, but it, you, there is, 
there is the foundation for my current interest in nationalism was already there when I was talking about sort of the nation state being a unit in which it's sort of many of these nation states having um, uh, subscribing to sort of liberal notions and to have even been created. They had to have come out of a liberal historical tradition uh, and then they become the dominant social uh, polity, social, political, social, and economic polity of our time period, and and they're very they're particularist units, and yet they're promoting universal values of of liberal enlightenment, of an individualism, of cosmopolitanism, that you know, of, of democracy, of capitalism. They're 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 encouraging this notion that. We can have it all. We can be nation states, but we can also be cosmopolitan and universal. And I think that that would be um, <clears throat> and that then creates this notion that, you know, what we have to do, what we have to worry about are, are um, you know, how to encourage nation states to, say, get rid of landmines or um, to deal with pollution in the oceans. Those are all absolutely worthy causes that have to be addressed. But the nation states themselves created those problems by dividing the world into all these little mini units that control specific chunks of territory and then say, this is mine and that's not yours. And the foundation for those nation states is, a, is basically nationalism, is the notion that we're here to protect our citizens first and the rest of you second, if at all. Right. So when you get a bunch of nation states together, um, you know, at the at the negotiating table, you've got you still got power, relative power, the more powerful states, <clears throat> just by the fact that they can afford to send multiple representatives and experts there already setting the agenda for all the weaker states. You know, and I've read stuff about where you go to these conferences and you've got very small states that can afford to send one representative. Americans come with 25 and they've all got the experts, right? So you've already got a power imbalance in these in these uh, forums that are trying to deal with the problem. And then, of course, the powerful states will only agree to certain things and they want everybody else to change their behavior, but not my behavior. And it all traces back to the fact that those representatives, when they're getting together in those forums, are ultimately beholden to their own citizens. And that's sort of how nationalism has sort of set up this contemporary moment so that the nation state is the only vision you're there as a representative is because you're a representative of the nation state. And so you're going to protect them first over everybody else. And so in some ways, by saying, oh, yeah, we can address all these problems and we'll use all these forms to do it. You're you're fooling people into thinking that this is actually going to solve the larger structural problem, that it's a world of nation states and they're going to put themselves first. And you see it with COVID. I mean, you know, that was the first thing that happened as soon as COVID came along, all this multilateralism immediately states threw up their borders. Boom. And now that doesn't mean that after the fact, they didn't sort of go back and try to think about, well, how can we deal with this? Say in Europe, how can the EU sort of assist in, in making more cooperative outcomes? But you have exactly there an example. We can talk all you want about solving pandemics, but at the end of the day, the, the dragon in the room is the nation state and nationalism. And that didn't go away just because we had a liberal world order. In fact, it was the foundation for that liberal world order. And I think that's what I think a lot of people, and unfortunately, a lot of activists get fooled about. Does that make sense? And I, again, I don't know if that answered your question. So feel free to come back at me if that didn't. I have to say, I've been pondering that uh, argument right. quite a lot because I am a human rights 
scholar, uh, sort of, I've done a lot of work in the area of human rights. Yep. And in that space, we obviously see uh, an awful lot of problems in terms of the actual compliance implementation of universal human rights standards. Yep. And it's, it's a very interesting take to think that, well, if the moral purpose of the nation state is to protect its own citizens and the genus of the, the contemporary historical world order is the nation state, that the universalities that we that we right. sort of aspire to are actually born of a historical process that was initiated by the formation of the nation state, then does that mean that ultimately uh, it's, it's, um, it's not really possible to realise universal human rights in the current historical contemporary world order and therefore we need to somehow fashion a new one, but there's no guarantee that any future world order would necessarily have the, the genus which then um, allows for the evolution of, of of moral codes and social practices that that uh, respect and observe uh, claims to universality. Have I understood that? You have understood it. Write that down right now because you've actually absolutely captured it. And it's a catch twenty two. It's absolutely you know that classic phrase where it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't because. And that's why some many people, uh, realists and liberals, are so concerned about China, right? And have been obsessed over China. You know, it's because. If the whole if this all this discussion about sort of achieving human rights is actually contingent upon both the nation state, which, again, if you get rid of the nation state, then you're actually going to get rid of the foundation for the cosmopolitanism that has given you the ability, because what you have is powerful nation states who cared about human rights, get rid of nation states and power and the whole impetus um, is or the foundation for the whole pursuit is not there. And then if you say, well, the world order is now going to be shaped by a different nation state that doesn't have a liberal tradition. Um, you know, this is why so many people fear the, the rise of China and say, well, no, no, now it is sort of liberal. It's participating in things. I mean, they're arguing basically they're sort of kind of aware that it is contingent to some extent on not just nation states, but power. And if the wrong, quote unquote, the wrong nation state is in charge of the world order, then there'll be no more pursuit of human rights. Now, even that to me, <clears throat> I should say, I find that to be um, a, a kind of a not a silly argument, but uh, it flips around the morality. Somehow it says only the West has any sort of moral claims. Right. We care about human rights. And sort of just putting aside the whole, where do these human rights come from? There is this tendency to assume we're the good guys and we're looking to do something good. Meanwhile, look at those Chinese. They're always um, you know, doing something horrible with human rights. Well, this is where I'd say you got to get outside of IR, academia, but also your own comfort zone. If you talk to Native American activists in America, you know, they're not sure they see the difference between what America did to them and how it still structurally ensures that they are powerless within the American context and what the Chinese do in their own countries. And so you get into these interesting, when you sort of step back and think about indigenous peoples and what they experience under liberalism, a lot of people want to claim, well, you guys have it better because you're in America versus, you know, um, you know, those anybody who doesn't toe the line in China is going to have it worse. Well, if you actually talk to indigenous activists, you know, I mean, there's genocide committed against their people, and it's not clear to many of them. You know, I'm talking about Native uh, American uh, indigenous peoples, Hawaiians. It's not clear to them that sort of the liberal world order has been any better to them. 
So it's it. There's a lot of stuff, like you say, when you start unpacking it. Can you achieve uh, human rights without the nation state and power? Uh, what kind of human rights are you actually promoting? Are they actually normatively suspect? And I don't mean because Asians have their own. I mean that it's coming from a foundation that there's a normative assumption that we're better. And so when you start getting critically self-reflexive about it, it, um, it yeah, it's very problematic. I should say, I hang out with human rights scholars all the time. You know, some of my best friends are human rights scholars. And I mean this because UConn, has a center on human rights. We have an institute here and we actually have all the papers for the Nuremberg trials um, that from the chief prosecutor because his son became a senator in Connecticut. And so human rights, a lot of my colleagues are human rights people. And we have these discussions all the time. And it's, uh, and I struggle with it myself because on the one hand, I myself have grown up in a liberal nation state, right? So whenever I see on the front pages, people who are being you know, evicted from their nation state, turned into refugees and other people refusing to take them in, it breaks my heart because I don't want to see that. But I understand why it's happening and why it constantly happens and why for all the discussions we can have in the international realm, about human rights, it's going to keep happening. With Ukraine being the the latest, you know, they're already talking about a million refugees. Yeah, I mean, in the in, in, yeah. in your piece, you speak about you know trying to keep an eye out for the dragons that you find at the edge of the map. Right. So you know, at that interface between structure and history, uh, there there are often these these sorts of gaps that people fall through and so refugees yes. is a classic example there they're yes. overlooked they're ignored we have had Jonathan I, was gonna, yeah. I was just gonna say real quick and there was an article in the guardian today that was talking about a um uh, a journalist was pointing out that already the press coverage of the ukrainians is being cast as well they're poor westerners just like us oh we have to help them and he's pointing out where was that sympathy for the Syrians? Well, guess what? It was a, it's, it's racially embedded because that's the other thing that gets embedded in nationalism. Racially, Ukrainians are like us. And literally, you have journalists who are saying that right now uh, in Europe. Oh, they're so like us. They drive cars. They dress like us. Oh, look at the little blonde girl with blue eyes. And this, you know, and there, yes, there is a backlash. But the very fact that that's being said is also kind of part of nationalism. The na racism gets embedded in it. So, well, we don't want to help Syrians, because they're not like us, but we do want to help Ukrainians. Again, it's on that edge of the map where you start seeing what is the hypocrisy that's going into this. But I'm sorry I cut you off. I just wanted to say that, they, yeah, exactly. That's why it you start looking at that stuff and you say, man, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on here. Yeah. And again, this is the dark side of the kind of liberal civic traditions. Exactly. Uh, it's what, you, what you've written about in your in one of your recent contributions on is it unipolarity and nationalism, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which we may get into more in just a minute. But I do want to hand over to Tom. Tom. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Jennifer. I was just going to go back a little bit to talk about um, sociability in the nation state. I mm -hmm. think I, I don't want to fall into the trap of becoming one of those commentators that looks at the current moment and goes, you know, we're in crisis, we don't trust each other, there's hyper-partisanship, there's like cleavages in society. Um, and so my question is really about what is the form of like group sociability 
and how does that interact with technology today? So do we, through the use of social media or like algorithmic driven communication, are we being driven into separate groups that then compromise the integrity of the nation state as a whole? Um, mm. And I guess the clear example would be Democrats and Republicans in America, <laughs> but obviously throughout the world, or at least throughout the Western world, in the UK, we have Brexit. In France, we've got the far right like on the surge. So can you speak to that, please? Yeah, it, it, it's, a really, it's really interesting to think about how technology works here. And again, going back historically, when I was cutting my teeth on sort of different ideas and theories in the 80s, one of the big arguments that Jim Rosenau was making at the time was that all these new technological developments were, of course, going to make us a better liberal world. It was going to allow us to, it was going to break down boundaries. It was going to break down national borders. We were going to be able to interact with one another. Uh, and certainly, you know, when the, the internet comes along and emails, it was all viewed in a very optimistic light. And of course, the, the end of the Cold War and sort of this period of liberal hegemony seemed to suggest, it seemed to promote that idea that technology was going to be our friend. And, uh, you know, I'm hardly the, the first person to argue, yeah, but again, here too, it has its dark side. It has its dark side for as much as it could make us feel that we didn't have to have a national identity and that we shared things with people around the world and that, you know, people who were in some far-flung country could be just as concerned about climate, climate changes as we were. It had the dark side as well that it could be used and you see it in the way that um, social media has been used by both the right and the left, but particularly by the right in the United States to carve up in within the national context, carve up discourse into us versus them. And again, it goes back to that. So we're primed for that kind of discourse. That's kind of my, my argument about the species sociability. We're primed to start seeing differences among themselves. There's a lot of things that work against it too, right? There's, because different, you can have different collective identities that cut across one another. You can be uh, in a religious group, but then you can also be in a gardening group or you can um, be involved with different interests. But what we see is that to some extent, the technology that's come along and, and social media like Facebook, um, they can also get us to start thinking of one another within a national context as the enemy, as the problem. And you can just go into that bubble, right? And I think uh, a lot of Americans are there. Um, they do studies that show that, in fact, since Trump uh, stepped down, there's even more people who are into the QAnon conspiracy theory. It's actually grown <laughs> since he stepped down. Uh, something like 20% of Americans are totally enmeshed in this notion that Democrats want to eat babies. And, you know, they truly believe some of this stuff. So I do think that what we're talking about is technology's got this dark side that can feed off of uh, this notion that humans sort of see differences and are primed to see differences. And what does that mean for the larger scheme of things? Well, on the one hand, I think some people want to read that, that that's the decline of the nation state. Uh, but it, what it may instead be is it's the start of breaking down larger nation states into even smaller and smaller units. And uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm just saying that that could be another possibility instead of it sort of breaking apart nations and states, because, of course, along with this, you have a bunch of a lot of people who don't 
trust the state, right? Want to go off on their own um, may lead to more authoritarian states uh, where they're saying, well, we're fighting among ourselves and some strong person steps in and says, right, I'll take care of all this by being authoritarian. But uh, as I say, another possibility is that we get into smaller and smaller national state units where, now, again, fantasy stuff, but who knows? Texas says, I want to be my own state, right? So they become their own nation state. And at one point they were. Um, the, and, you know, parts of India shave themselves off, right? If we're not going to get along, we want our own nation state. So you could actually see the nation state continuing to exist because nationalism is such a powerful rhetoric because it combines that sort of desire for a group and what you get out of a group with this notion that you get to self-determine your chunk of the, the planet. Right. So it connects territory. I'm a New Englander. I want to make decisions for myself. I get to do that. So I'm not going to listen to what those bums in Washington say. So when you start having everybody engaging in that kind of rhetoric, and it's not just in the West, you see it in Brazil, you see it in India, um, then there's actually a possibility it could get smaller and smaller units. We'll see. Jennifer, I think you highlighted one of the key things that resounds from your work, which is that the importance to separate the nation and the state as, as separate things, not just the nation state. And in our conversation so far, it seems evident the kind of dangers of the nation idea that we've seen in the you know the Ukrainian refugee crisis. And so it might be a logical conclusion to think, okay, if we just did away with the, the nationhood stories and just focus mm -hmm. on the state, that might, that might solve the issues there. Um, what would you say to someone, what are some of the difficulties of that, um, right. of a kind of a state void of nationhood? Yeah, and it's something I've grappled with for a long time. And again, you know, it's something that I think it's important to always read outside your comfort zone and to really take seriously alternative ideas. Uh, even if you think there's something wrong with them, taking them seriously on their own terms and learning them. And I think uh, that argument that nationalism is a problem, that if we overcome it, then uh, human beings can see how they're more connected than not. Uh, it's been around for a long time. Uh, and it's there's liberal proponents of it that sort of assumed under the liberal world order we were almost there. Uh, and I used to teach that subject and I would have students read stuff and then they all nod. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're this cosmopolitan citizenship. The nation state no longer matters kind of thing. So it's it's been out there for some time. And I think you had a lot of scholars who actually thought nationalism was already dead. I mean, it hasn't been until recently. It wasn't a topic really many people talked about in international relations. They talk about it when a nation state fell apart, like in Yugoslavia you saw a wave of discussion about nationalism. All those crazy nationalists are killing each other again. But for much of the West, it was assumed that we were somehow a different form of nationalism. John Eikenberry, who's written the most about liberal world order, has said that we're a civic nationalist. Um, and there are various other scholars who have argued that as well, that we don't have that kind of battle nationalism. We're actually uh, universal. So we think of universal terms. Uh, and so... Taking that argument seriously, the problem with it is, is that what it misses about nationalism is that nationalism isn't an internal choice. And this is the piece that I'm writing right now uh, that I'm seeing happening again in the literature. Many people think of nationalism as if they don't think of it as sort of part of global governance. They don't think of it as part of world order. They tend, at least in the IR field, international relations field. 
they tend to think that it's a, it's a foreign policy choice that you make that's embedded in what your leaders decide. So it's sort of a state, sort of state down, top down. They encourage this nationalism and therefore it gets you all worked up and you go out and act on it. And what they're missing, and this is something that, again, I've sort of spent the last couple of years wading through all the contemporary literature on nationalism. It's amazing work that's being done by those scholars. None of them are IR scholars. All of them are in other disciplines. And they argue that at a certain point, you, you can talk about the birth of the nation state and where nationalism came from. That was the old day. At a certain point, nationalism flipped to become the dominant ideology of today to the point where we don't even realize how much all of us are nationalists. Every single person on the planet is only raised within the context of a national unit, or if they're a refugee, they're well aware that they're not a member of a national unit. Uh, and the, and what that means then is that nationalism, in a sense, is shaping the way we are raised from the get go. And we're not it's not a choice. And um, I'm trying to remember one of the I think it's Marco Antonich has said that you can't even talk about world politics without using we and us and them, the national context. Right. So when you look in the paper, it's America. It's the UK, it's Ukraine, it's Russia, right? Those very, and even if you want to say the people of Russia, you're still saying they belong there. Ukrainians belong there. The Americans are over here. Uh, UK's here. And so it's, it's embedded in everything we do. And so you have all these amazing scholars that show how it's in our nursery rhymes. It's in when we color a map when we're in preschool of our state. It's when you have little projects when you're in third grade um, where you are asked to pick a country and tell us what it does. And, you know, let's show a map. And then you're going to do a little project in front of the class about what it is. And then it gets embedded in, you know, my credit card is Bank of America and it's got a little flag on it. So here we go, there are flags up and, and it's in the food we eat and it's in the way we dress and so on. So that nationalism isn't a choice. We are actually all socialized into it. So that means that the possibility of getting out of it is very much more difficult than I think any liberal or cosmopolitan scholars because they weren't taking it seriously and, and neither were realists. Again, I, I don't want to make it sound like somehow they, uh, you know, the realists were on top of this in a way that others weren't. But because they weren't, uh, they don't take it seriously. They don't understand that it's uh, in an ideal world, if you could get rid of it, sure. But then we just figure out some other way of socially differentiating ourselves. But nationalism itself, it's it's like, the foundation for the whole thing and getting it out of the system. I don't even, I think dynamite would have to do it, but, um, and so that's why it's a problem. That's, that's why it's a problem. I think that's such a kind of sobering point, but it's quite, it drags our feet back to the ground. You know, we're floating off into Cosmo land and then we is tried to drag back to the ground a bit like the Ukrainian crisis, I think has done at least for myself, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah. I think one, one of the things I often, struggle with is obviously there is this idea of like the Dunbar number and, and that we're naturally um, there's a proclivity to create groups. And, and I really, I get that. And I think it's such a good point that even if, however cosmopolitan we might think it, we often boil down to that nationalized society. But it, when we think of, for example, the U S or Russia as a, as an entity and a nation state in a group, 
it's so huge. And obviously we're, we're so mm-hmm. socialized now to think of it as a normal thing. But if right. you went back to kind of, you know, 2000 years ago or whatever, that's, unthi- that's unthinkable. You know, it's, it, it, it would be like, you know, in the twenties saying, oh, we're going to walk on the moon. And right. so how do we get from here where there are these cr- crazy things that we're so used to, like, oh, right. the, the US, this huge land mass that everyone believes in as a, as a nation. Is it too simplistic to say, can't we just grow that idea? You know, and so for these huge collective action problems like climate change, couldn't we just keep on inflating and inflating this nation idea? Keep inflating it and see if it, it pops before we can get to the whole, we just think of the whole world. But obviously, in, in, for example, like Star Wars or Star Trek, Right. Earth does feel like a nation state, you know, and yeah. different planets feel like a country. Yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, like my my coffee mug, right? So, <laughs> you know, weaned on Star Trek, absolutely. Battlestar Galactica, all that great stuff. Um, yeah, and, and certainly it's interesting this whole, because again, I've grappled with that, right? Could, could this notion of nationalism um, sort of become the world government, like we're one big national government, right? But of course, those science fiction uh, stories also give us a clue as to what probably would have to happen. You have to have the Martians arrive, right? You have to have the alien species that comes along that says, right, now all you guys, uh, guess what? We're something different. And we're Amer- Americans, Russians, everybody goes, oh, I guess we are one species, right? And sort of to me, barring that, I think uh, it's very difficult geographically, uh, historically, ethnically to get, and particularly given that our numbers have grown, right, so that we're so many people on the planet, to get them to all think uh, in sort of one mindset to say we are all one, well, that was the liberal dream. And I don't think, you know, as I said, I, I think it was already existing divisions there. So you've got path dependency working against you where, you know, I mean, I studied the Yugoslavia civil war. I mean, the Serbs were date, dating their grievances back to the 900s, right? It's like historical memory among humans can be very, continue to be very divisive. So I guess I, I don't see it unless the, Mar- the Martians arrive, unless they do arrive and we suddenly are forced to think of ourselves as a unit, a planetary unit that is really different from other planetary units. I think that too often you're going you're gonna to get more of what I was saying about to Tom's question, more of a devolution into smaller units rather than the bigger unit. I would love to be proved wrong. I should also say, you know, again, I go back to what my own preferences are. I mean, grown up in this society and and I would like to see liberalism succeed, but I, I don't see how it can in a generic cosmopolitan, we can all get along idea. Uh, I just want to acknowledge its dark side, but also my skepticism. I, I'm not seeing how we can get to there from here. I think is the way to put it. I'm curious, building on on uh, on that, um, do you think that that the existential risk that we're facing, uh, you know, climate degradation, could that potentially fill the role of the Martians in mm-hmm. uniting us? And um, you know, it, it would appear that neoclassical realism's emphasis on group competition and power and social practice will combine with non-human natural world and forcing function of biophysical, um, even geological forces. And and there's a a huge mess coming. Many would argue it's already here. Mm -hmm. So uh, what what do you think 
the, the how you think the nation state will respond and and i suppose what are the functions going to be of those individual pieces when the main i uh, sort of antagonist doesn't recognize the borders that we've put into place as being right. legitimate <clears throat> well i guess though again just to sort of be depressing i'm old enough to remember the cold war and um the notion that, um, you know, the, the superpowers were armed to the teeth. And I saw an article about this the other day saying how, you know, when Russia put its uh, forces on nuclear alert, uh, the writer was saying, I grew up in the 80s. I remember, you know, constantly being afraid. And I was like, yeah, if you grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you're also constantly afraid that nuclear annihilation was about to happen. Uh, and literally, people who grew up during that time period can talk not just about how we used to have to practice duck and cover, you know, somehow if we crawled under our desks, we were going to survive a nuclear holocaust, but also that you would hear, you know, strange sounds, uh, say, coming from the sky, and you would automatically, your mind would go there. Oh, this is it. It's happening. We're about to die. And yet we still had for many decades, um, you know, nuclear weapons increased and increased. Uh, and so to me, the lesson I got from that was that, you know, no matter how much we're aware of how dangerous this, this something is, and we all know something should be done about it, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's we then overcome our differences to say, well, OK, let's band together and solve this problem. And particularly through state-based mechanisms, because, again, we go back to the whole problem that the whole reason the state exists in today's age, not historically, but for today, it's to service its people. Um, and it, the leaders themselves, if they're kleptomaniacs, I mean, you know, they may, in fact, just be ripping off the people as well. But they always couch it in this language of we're here to serve the people. So um, ultimately, even when many people feel that way, uh, it's going to take if, if we've got an existing state based system, then it's going to take the states themselves to decide that somehow it aligns with their interests. And they're obviously not there yet. Right. Um, it's going to take a lot. And certainly you have seen times in the past like slavery. Uh, it's interesting to see how at, at a certain point, you know, great powers engaged in African slavery. And that at a certain point, it was actually no longer in their interest. And it was both the coming together of moral imperatives, people who were fighting against the slave trade. But it was also because economically, the Industrial Revolution was starting to change uh, their notions about whether they needed all this labor. So you had a, a sort of a joint coming together of recognition um, uh, in the West that this was no longer a viable thing to pursue. And so eventually they outlawed transatlantic slave trade. You could have something like that happen in climate change. I don't want to suggest that it couldn't happen. Um, if, as you say, it's getting, and I'm seeing it in the paper myself, that they're saying, you know, things that we thought were going to happen 50 years ago, they're happening right now. You know, this is happening now. Uh, so say, you know, now's not the time to buy a house on the coast, right? So if that gets, if it starts really hitting home in more rigorous ways, then you could, and it's affecting American national interests, plus there's that moral component, plus there are activists working on it. You could see a coming together of that. Um, but I also think you're just as likely not to see that. I mean, in other words, I don't think that's a given, no matter how much effort we put into it, 
Because you also have, we haven't talked about capitalism, right? Good old capitalism. Talk about a fire-breathing dragon that the liberal world order is just built on the back of it. Oh, liberals, it's so good. Being a neoliberal capitalist is going to make the world better. Are you kidding? I mean, that always was in conflict with democracy promotion. And so, in fact, you've got a lot of incentive by capitalist um, stakeholders to continue to work against any solution. And so it's not just state-based. We also have capitalism we have to bring in as part of this liberal world order that has tried to make everybody neoliberal capitalists, which is basically laissez-faire capitalism. I know some people would argue with me about that. But again, I think it's a return to this notion that there's no state regulation, that states are supposed to be supporting all the capitalists. So you've got a tension built right there. Um, yeah, um, I do want to talk, though, just on this point, and I hope this is someplace we were going to go. Uh, you know, that whole notion of sort of the fatalism. I actually think if you want to try to make a difference, climate control. I mean, I have lots of students who go to the, the UN conferences or they're meeting with other activists across the world over climate change, trying to make a difference. And I teach international organization law and I'm always saying, yeah, get out there, do stuff. You know, I mean, I encourage them. I'm just always like, but just be aware of what you're dealing with. You're still in a state-based national system. So be aware of that. Um, but to my mind, where you could actually make a lot of difference that a lot of people, they're only just starting to pay attention to in international relations. This is an everyday practice at the local level. I mean, too much of IR is assuming it's all state-based top down, right? The state makes the decisions. But in fact, if you want to change hearts and minds and get people interested, you should actually be doing grassroots in your own backyard to get people to recognize, hey, Climate change isn't a Democratic versus Republican thing. It's not a right-wing or left-wing conspiracy. Hey, look, just the plants that I used to be able to grow in my garden, I can't grow them anymore because climate change is affecting me here right now. And so I think to my mind, you could maybe the activism at the international level, and, and you can be an activist, but maybe you do better if you want to convince a a nation state to not, you know, eat dogs, right? There's a big campaign about getting Korean uh, and Asian states to treat dogs humanely instead of coming in and saying, hey, I'm an American activist and I want to show you how this is done. And so we're going to stop eating dogs and we're not going to round them up. Instead, you encourage the local activists, the people who are actually parts of those societies to say, yeah, this is a matter we care about and we're going to try to convince our own people that this is important. You're coming from the bottom up. And that, I think, is actually more viable because then the nation state owns it. Then they say, yeah, we care about dogs now, too, in a way. So it's not just you Westerners telling us we should care about dogs and treat them humanely. We ourselves have decided as a society that we care about them. So I think that's a place where I think more could be done. Yeah, I mean, the climate change issue is a really important one, one that's very prominent for us. And, you know, I think it's it's probably not an exaggeration to say that, at least in the mainstream of the IR scholarship, there's a lot of focus on uh, very sort of, you know, high level tragedy of the commons, uh, utilitarian approaches that tend to emphasize elite techno fixes. Uh, and, you know, I think Robert Kahane has basically made the case that we should really avoid the messy business of activism, justice <laughs> and, and ethics. 
<laughs> well, exactly. And again, I cut my teeth on all of his stuff. My first book, which nobody reads because it was kind of boring. It was written in order to get tenure. You know, so this is talking about academia. You're not going to stick around in the game if you don't have a tenured track job and or some sort of position that's going to pay your bills. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that his he's very state based. And as you say, it's activism is secondary and he sees the state based system. I, he's moved around in his career in terms of where how he feels about the state. But he did seem to land on this notion that to make a difference, you have to work with the state. Well, I guess my point is, well, to make a difference, you actually have to work with the nation. And the nation is not the same thing as the state. And in fact, if you go back and you look at, say, just American patriotism, uh, Woodrow Wilson is well known for having promoted these notions of a national unity. But prior to that, it was very grassroots. I mean, it was, you know, daughters of the Republic and, um, you know, widows of the Civil War who would put on these patriotic parades to bring the two sides together. And it was actually the state had to catch up to this notion that was being generated from the bottom up that we were a nation. So, I mean, and obviously there's a relationship between those two, but I think too often in international relations, we focus on the state, we focus on the international, we focus on the international organizations and the international law. And, and because we haven't been looking at the nation uh, until recently, we haven't recognized that actually the hearts and minds have to change within the nation to get the state to catch up. So, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting that distinction you draw between, I think, this, the definition of, a, of of the state as a governance apparatus and the nation as a cultural community. And it's, these are not one and the same. They're not synonymous. No. Uh, we, want to think, we want to think hard about that. And we use the term nation state. Yeah, well, helpful. in fact, typically when for the past 20 years, if I wanted to, if I was asked to do something, to write something, um, I, I've, when I, I insist upon using the term nation state, the hyphen matters. And again, scholars of nationalism will argue this right away that, that typically in many fields, the nation state and the, the nation and the state get conflated when people are really just talking about the state. They're not talking about the nation. And I would get that kind of pushback in the international relations scholarship when I would try to use nation state. I would actually have people say, just use state. I'm like, no, 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 it matters. And it matters. That's my long-term argument. These two things are not the same thing. I'm going back to Tom's question, they may be diverging, but that doesn't mean that one's disappearing, uh, that either of them are disappearing. It may be a divergence that we get more nations and more competition over which uh, what kinds of states we have. I don't know. But, but yeah, exactly. That has been endemic to the field that they tend not to look at nations. And I think now we're catching up. They know... Now it's in the news. I guess we have to look at nations again. Yeah, I mean, we could talk for another hour on that, no doubt. And I'd certainly oh God, direct yes. our, our audience to your recent pieces on unipolarity and nationalism. Really fascinating. Uh, I think we are rolling to a close, but we, we do yeah. want to just touch on a couple of more questions before we close. And firstly, sort of circling back to an issue which was raised briefly, the the question of, of ethics. Um, so, I mean, you've suggested that some level of cynicism is embedded in the realist approach. And this comes with a kind of hard-nosed realist pessimism, if you will. Um, so, you know, so uh, two parts to this question, really. One is, what is the role for ethics in this kind of worldview? And as a provocation, I know Robert Cox argued that the classical realist of the 21st century should encourage the pursuit of humane governance at all levels of social organization and emphasize ecological sustainability as a necessary mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. precondition for species survival. 
So what does realism and ethics mean in that context? And would you agree with Robert Cox? Yeah, I would. And that's why uh, I've, I've gone back and forth over whether to call myself a neoclassical realism realist or a realist constructivist. And uh, the neoclassical, as I think you know, a lot of people sort of found the neoliberal, the neo-neosynthesis, as, as Ole refers to it, it found that very unsatisfying, this notion that the realists and liberals are all, you know, they're positivists, they have the same epistemological, they're rationalists, and they get into all these boring debates about whether states pursue absolute or relative gains. And I, I was not the only one who found that boring. And um, also who trying to deal with the challenge of the end of the Cold War and what it meant for realism, if liberalism was sort of the dominant mode, because that's what America and the West were, then what did that mean for realism? A lot of people started going back to earlier texts and rediscovering things that they liked. Now, I should say, not all neoclassical realists think alike. Some of them are very state-based. I tend to be more identity interested. I'm interested in those issues of identity, of what we bring as scholars to the table. How have our identities been shaped such that I'm, I, you know, I'm an American, so they're right there. I practice nationalism. As much as I try to be self-critical and, and reflexive about it, I'm still going to be bringing certain predispositions to the table when I talk about international relations. Um, and I think neoclassical realists, uh, a lot of them, E.H. Uh, Carr, if you want to throw them in there as a classical realist, a lot of people do. Of course, Morgenthau, early Morgenthau, as opposed to the power politics Morgenthau. I think he was very sensitive to how we are sort of creatures of historical, of our historical moment, and that it's very hard. It's, it's really impossible to stand back and be objective about that, but you can be better at it than I think most realists and even some neoclassical realists are. Um, and so in, in thinking about that, though, I also think that that was something that like um, Michael Williams has written about, um, and there's a few others I know I'm missing, but written about, well, what the classical realists were, they were more aware of their, their, themselves as historically situated, as opposed to just taking what they see for granted and going from there. They were aware that it was historically constructed, that they were creatures of that historical construction, and that part of their job and, and because that historical context was dominated by liberal ideas, and again, this is where, you know, when Morgenthau comes to the U U.S., he sees it in the 50s, uh, the early 50s. He sees how um, liberalism is sort of just taken for granted as the way to pursue the world and it will make the world a better place and saw his function was to say, no, hold the phone here. You know, that itself is a historical construction. And you have to be very care careful about what you're promoting in the world that you think of as the national interest, uh, because you're kind of getting wrapped up in your own ideology. You're not seeing that it is ideology. And I think to me, that's what the value of, of, of classical realism was and why I think that that leads it to have an ethical component which I know I do some citations in 2005, but I think uh, there's another piece that I did for a volume that, um, uh, who was it? Um, Patrick James, Annette Freiberg, and in, uh, Ewan Harrison wrote, in, and I, I write about um, realism as a tradition, and I talk more about its ethics there. And again, other people have talked about this. It, you can argue that it is an ethical position to say, to encourage greater self-reflexivity about, and that realism, if you think about realism correctly, you can treat realism as a way to challenge 
um, dominant ideologies to argue, you guys need to be more self-reflexive. Now, realism isn't the only position, like there's plenty of other uh, post-colonial scholars, feminist scholars are also arguing from a position of let's step back and look at what we assume is the common sense of the world and then challenge it. You know, no, patriarchy is not simply some common sense. It's a social construct, right? You know, um, so there are plenty and post-colonial scholars who kind of pick up on all the time that what's being promoted as a dominant hegemon is in fact often very particular to specific nation states historically that just happen to be powerful. They pick up on it as well. But my argument is re realism can do that as well. Uh, it's just a lot of realist scholars. And again, in the American context, as they go back to it, a lot of them are mouthpieces for um, American foreign policy. So they don't do it. They don't get self-reflexive. Instead, they say realism is a recipe for how we should do foreign policy. Right. Don't believe those silly liberals. We should, we need to amass more weapons. We need to balance China, blah, 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 right? So, and again, that's not the kind of realism I like engage in. Uh, and I don't think they're being ethical then. I think that they actually do need to take seriously, like we were saying before, climate change. It's happening, dudes. It's really happening. And it's going to affect, it's not just some out there thing. You know, as I say, I'm a gardener. It's, it's happening right here. Um, I can tell you right now, I'm the town coordinator for this um, uh, national group. Well, they're starting to go international, which is called Pollinators Pathway, where the decline in pollinators in my own garden, since I've been deal, uh, gardening for 25 years, the diversity is just not there. So it's already happening, right? Um, but again, I think you can do that from a position of realism, not our realistic. I think that uh, anecdote definitely brings it home, doesn't it, really? <laughs> uh, and yeah, as you say, realism is a many splendid thing. Uh, and <laughs> <I like that. laughs> uh, it often is, you know, um, reduced to this sort of very static kind of binary understanding, but that's not actually the case. No. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the issue of climate science is something we discussed in a recent uh, conversation with the historian Alfred McCoy. And as you say, you know, um, uh, sort of riffing on Philip K. Dick, reality is that which doesn't go away when you stop believing in, in it. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yes, I love Philip K. Dick too. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. And, and you know, again, I think it's like, a, it's weird the way realists and liberals will kind of get caught up in there. Again, I think it, I'm talking American international relations scholars in particular will get caught up in their own ideological preferences and trying, you know, try to be polemical instead of having conversations with one another, they just want to fight each other. And I don't think, I don't see where that's satisfying in any way. Don't you want to have a conversation and really think about the big ideas? And too often it's like, no, they want to stake out a position. And, and again, it goes back to, they want to advise the prince. This is the rest this is what you should do. You should join international organizations and promote multiculturalism. No, you should amass power against China and, you know, don't try to bring it into the world order. And I don't I don't see where that even helps American foreign, you know, foreign policymakers or um, American hegemony or power. Certainly doesn't help American polity, because while you're all arguing about this stuff, our own polity is falling apart thanks to nationalism. Right. So, you know, it's like and now they're all coming late to the game. Oh, it turns out nationalism. I just have to read all this sort of stuff in the last four or five years has been written. Like I said, you know, this book, this is tw uh, to, uh, 2018. And it's all about how, well, we realists knew nationalism was going to tear America apart the whole time. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? But uh, again, I much prefer conversations. Maybe I'm just weird that way. But I will say, 
if you like to have conversations about big things, this is, I guess, my, my final take, just in terms of advice, um, you know, then just take other people's ideas seriously, read widely, even when it makes you uncomfortable, and, and just be somebody who they'd want to have a glass of wine with. And over that, you're talking big ideas. And literally, that, that piece written in 2005, at one point, um, when we're all sitting around in some cafe in Delaware for the conference that Alice and Matt were hosting, at one point, I said, so, okay, there's lots of realists out there, right? Why did you, why did you decide to invite me to be the realist that was, would write this? Because you know, up until that point, I was doing more theoretical comparison. I mean, I was doing realism, liberalism, thinking about how these different theoretical frameworks worked, but I, ha I hadn't really written anything about global governance per se. And they literally said, well, you know, we, we ran down the list of realists that we could invite and none of us we could imagine we'd want to talk to over dinner, right? So it's like, oh, okay. So it's personality based, right? I'm just somebody you'd enjoy talking with, which I love, right? And there is a truth to it, quite literally. You can have all sorts of publications to be this polemical person that everybody reads. So yeah, you got a lot of sites, that looks great, but nobody can talk to you, you know, because, and nobody wants to talk to you because you just want to make it an argument as opposed to a discussion. So and when you're thinking about your own careers, if you're going to go into academia, try to make it a discussion rather than an argument. And if the person shuts you down, they just want to argue, then to some extent, you can engage with their what they've written, but you're never going to be able to engage with them as a person. And person, then I'm not, I'm particularly not interested. I don't think you should be either. <laughs> well, I think that's a wonderful place to close, Jennifer. Thank you so much for this, such a rich conversation. I think we've covered so much ground. Thank you for being willing to, to go there with us, you know, and uh, I Absolutely. think there's a lot of, a, a lot to, to take away from this conversation, obviously, including just, you know, reflecting on how ensnared we are within our historical moments uh, and the degree to which, you know, I, I guess we're in a in a situation of continuity. So the historical kind of continuity, the, the legacies and everything else that's, that are in motion, but also the extent to which perhaps we're also in a time of discontinuity. Yep. Uh, yep. So I guess I agree. That's, that's exciting. Yes, it is. <laughs> and as, as um, you know, and perhaps we need to fake that Martian invasion. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I'm going to be very curious to see if the Russian invasion of Ukraine makes a difference in American politics. Because, you know, that is an argument that has been in the literature, again, not my own, but I mean, it traces back to Waltz, but other people have observed it as well, that the American polity functions best when it has an external enemy. Um, and we haven't had an external enemy, which is part of the reason why we may be falling apart right now, right? But so, yeah, we live in interesting times, which actually is a Chinese curse, or it's, a, it's a, maybe not Chinese curse, maybe it was a British curse that was attributed to the Chinese, but it is a curse. It's not actually a good thing when you live in interesting times. But for IR scholars, <laughs> lots to talk about. Never a dull moment. Right, and I, exactly. I hope we'll have a chance to pick this up again sometime, Jennifer. Yes, thank you so much. Good. Yes, really thank you so it. much. Thank you, you guys. Uh, all right, bye. Bye. Thank you. It was wonderful thank meeting you. you. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.